Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode seven, lucky number eleven of the podcast. I don't know what that is. I think there's a movie called Lucky Number Eleven. It's probably some dude in the movie's name. Uh, they always do that shit. They're always weaving in some character's name into the title. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. This is not really my idea. I hear it on other podcasts, or like other comedians point this out, but it's always shitty when you... Um, it's usually like romantic comedies where you feel like they came up with the title uh, before they wrote the movie. Um, Maid of Honor, but Maid is spelled M-A-D-E. Yeah. Or uh, what's the Catherine Zeta-Jones movie? She's she's a chef who's learning how to love. No reservations. They always weave in uh, whatever the topic of the movie is. Um, but yeah, welcome to episode seven of the podcast. This is M. And um, I, I should start out by saying, uh, if you want to connect with me, I'm, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to promote the podcast. So... What I hear is, instead of doing it at the end like I have been doing, I'm supposed to promote and tell you... I'm supposed to give you call to actions at the top of the show. So, um, if you'd like to connect with my socials, you can find me at ThisIsMXOXO. And um, I'm eager to to grow the podcast and uh, find more people to listen. So, um, you're certainly welcome to broadcast this to uh, anyone you think would enjoy it. But uh, really, think about one person in your network, in your friend circle, whatever, your family... Um, who you think would enjoy the show and share it with them. Uh, you know, send them your favorite episode or send them this episode. And um, and also, if you're willing to rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen, uh, that would be helpful too. Uh, you can find the podcast now in Apple Podcasts, um, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and um, or on YouTube if you want. Um, at some point, we might uh, make this a video podcast. But um, we just, if I'm being honest, we just don't have the audience yet to justify that. Um, it's kind of funny, actually. I've been, you know, I've, I don't want to say I've been doing this secretly because I've obviously been sharing it on my social media, but I haven't really talked about this with anyone. I, you know, no, no one in my, no one at work knows I have a podcast. As far as I know, no one I see in my life knows I have a podcast. And uh, I hadn't even brought it up in therapy um, <laughs> I'm not sure what that means exactly, but, um, I, yeah, it came up in therapy the first time where I was like, oh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm doing a podcast. Um, but, uh, where was I going with that? Um, yeah, Jesus, man, what a senior moment. I'm not, dude, and I'm, I'm pretty young and I'm already having senior moments. Um, Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Hopefully it'll come back. But um, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it came up in therapy for me because um, I, I, I remember saying even in earlier episodes that I'm still going to be releasing music. And this is kind of uncomfortable for me to talk about. But, um, you know, at the beginning of this year, uh, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to release one original song every month. And uh, they were going to be fully produced. Um, you know, I work. I have a longtime collaborator that I've been working with for the past three years. His name is Gowan Matthews, and Gowan is exceptional. It's almost unfair that my name goes on the songs because for me, songwriting has always been like for me, the work is finished when the song is done with voice and guitar. And anyone who listened to my early music when I wrote and performed as the Plastic Arts. You know, those were just songs that I, I wrote and recorded on my acoustic guitar, and I recorded them myself. Um, they were actually all recorded in the exact same space that I'm sitting and recording this podcast now, um, which is strange to think. You know, I don't know how long you've lived in your apartments or your homes or wherever you happen to be living, but I've literally lived like 12 different lives in this space. It's pretty crazy. Um but, um, for me, that's, that's when the work is finished. But, um, at the, like three years ago, I finally decided it was time to start going into the studio and producing uh, and doing songs that were more fully produced. And that's when I linked up with Gowan Matthews. Um, and at first that was a lot of cover songs. Um, I had recently reconnected with this dude, Jack Conti, who some people might know, um, as half of, uh, the group Pomplamoose, um, which was Jack and his now wife, Natalie Dawn. 
Um, and I was also connected, Jack actually connected me with a dude named Jake Coco, who's down in, um, now he's in San Diego. At the time, he was in Los Angeles. And uh, Jack really believed that Jake could really help me go from uh, zero to one, as we were talking about it at the time. And Jake had had a lot of success doing cover tunes on YouTube. And not that that was something I really wanted to do long term, but it would be a way to help me um, find an audience that I could eventually expose my original music to. And so he put us in touch. Uh, I went down to Los Angeles and did a cover of, uh, at the time, it was a really popular song, Justin Bieber's um, Love Yourself. And Jake's a really, uh, Jake, Jake Coco is a really cool guy. Um, I actually just saw him for the first time in a long time uh, down in San Diego where he's living now. I had seen him last time I was down there for the Matt Nathanson tour and uh, saw him a few months later again when I was there for my follow-up show. Um, but yeah, Jake really did kind of set me off, you know, when I started this new project as M the heir apparent, um, that was the first thing I did was the, uh, the Justin Bieber cover. And, um, you know, I think for about a year, I just released a new cover song every month, some popular song. It was everything from Ariana Grande to, um, um, surprisingly, I mean, the most popular song I've done is this song middle by, DJ Snake and Bipolar Sunshine. And it's just so funny, you know, there's this thing that people say, and until you experience it, you don't know how freaking true it is. But you do, you do, as an artist, you do not decide what um, you will be known for. You do not decide what will be successful. I think most artists are surprised what they're known for. Um, I mean, I just reread A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, and I uh, I remember... I mean, it always stuck with me. I mean, in, in the now prologue he wrote, it's called A Clockwork Orange Resucked, where the, I mean, the original U.S. version of A Clockwork Orange had the last chapter deleted, and it was that version that the movie was based off. And so it ends on this sort of dour, sort of pessimistic note. But in the actual book, Alex, the protagonist, um, he is reformed, but not by any sort of... Uh, clinical or um, systematic, or I'm, I'm, I'm not sure the word for it, but um, not by the system, but by by his own volition, by his own will to, to be good. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know where, I was literally just talking about Justin Bieber covers, and now I'm talking about A Clockwork Orange. Oh, I was talking about the idea that Anthony Burgess, the author of that book, said that he, you know, he wrote A Clockwork Orange very quickly. It's not something he felt... Um, uh, very invested in, and it's it's sort of discouraging for him as an artist that that is the is the is the book that he's known for. Um, he he personally didn't evaluate it as his best work. I think that's that's almost um, the case. I think that's the case for every artist, with, uh, almost without exception. I think. Um, although who knows? Maybe Tolstoy would say that War and Peace is his best novel, or um, you know, maybe Beethoven does think the Ninth Symphony is his best work. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm only saying this because I'm thinking it now, but it's sort of funny, like, Johannes Brahms, who, um, you know, I've talked in the past that I listen to music, like, obsessively. And this year, almost without exception, I mean, of course, I'll dabble in something else uh, every now and then. Like, I'll go back to the 1975, or I'll listen to a couple dance hall songs, or... But almost without exception, I've listened to nothing but Brahms the last year. So it's been like 10 months of Brahms for me right now. And uh, will be two months more of Brahms for me because I, I, you know, last year it was Beethoven. I said, I'm going to listen to nothing but Beethoven for uh, last year. And then this year it's nothing but Brahms. Um, But it's like, I think, not that people would know this intuitively, but Brahms' most popular piece of music is the lullaby song that we all know. Bum 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 bum. Um, you never know. I did music <laughs> uh, by that performance right there. But um, yeah. Anyway, I'm not sure that Brahms would consider that his most popular thing. I think it's really just like a, a minor song in his vast output of of songs. Um, but for whatever reason, that's what um, popular culture has latched onto. But anyway. Outside of that, his most popular piece is probably one of his uh, Hungarian dances. If I played it for you, you would know it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just sort of 
fucking blowing hard here and, and sounding super eggheadish talking about classical music when all I'm really trying to say is, you know, people don't get to decide what they're known for. And this song that, you know, now has, I think it has like over 13 million streams on Spotify. It's far and away the most, you know, the most streamed song I've ever released. You know, the song was just sent to me by my brother randomly. He was like, oh, I think you'd like that. I, I, he may have even said like, you should cover this. Um, but yeah, my brother will just send me tracks that he's listening to. And, uh, I had never heard of the song, uh, despite how popular it was. And I remember I was literally driving into the studio one day and, uh, I had booked time. I had absolutely nothing prepared. And literally as I was driving into the studio, I was just like, I just was listening to that song and I said, you know what, I'm going to cover this. And we just sort of figured it out and we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and did this, um, you know, beatboxing thing. And, and when I listen to it now, I mean, when it was finished, it didn't like really mean anything to me. But when I listen to it now, I think, yeah, we did a really good job with that one. You know, it's just kind of a cool take on us. Like you would never know. It's kind of a, I don't know, is EDM the right word? You would never, it's just, you know, the version that we do of it is quite a bit different um, than the original, but it also stands on its own as well as, as being kind of cool. Um, but, um, yeah, and I'm not even sure where I was going with that, except to say that, um, the covers did what I was intending them to do. You know, I had a lot of those playlisted. A lot of those now have millions of streams, if not hundreds of thousands of streams. And I mean, I certainly was able, I mean, with those recordings, I was certainly able to reach more people in probably one year. I mean, I'm I'm really thinking of the last three years, but even in that one year, I had reached more people in one year than I had with everything, with all of my creative work leading up to that six or maybe it could have been like six, five or six years of, you know, writing and recording and releasing music as the plastic arts. At the same time, though, I wasn't making a lot of fans. And when I, you know, you know, a lot of people would say, well, people are streaming your music. Well, I could see, you know, when you're, <laughs> you know, when you're looking at the streams, it's very obvious to see that people are finding and listening to your covers. But um, at the same time that I was recording these covers with Gowan, I was recording just a ton of original music that we were waiting to release. And so within that first year, I mean, I not only recorded, I think like 12 covers that were fully produced and arranged between he and I, but I recorded about... 12 original songs as well, you know, over an album's worth of original material, which were eventually, at the end of that first year, I, I you know, I released ha uh, five of them as the, the Be Free EP. Uh, and that was in like 2016. And even though the recordings were already finished, it wasn't until a year later that I released five more as the Save Yourself EP. And, and all those were batch recorded at the same time. And then, um, even two songs from those sessions that I've been sitting on for almost two years now were just released this year. One of them is The Fall of Rome, and the other one is Gimme More. Um, and the rest were recorded this year. And some of them were written this year. At the same time now, no, this is October. And even though um, I didn't release any original material last month, which was really a confluence of you know, uh, just Gowan not being available and me being too slow to book time with him. By the time I was ready to work and get something out, he just wasn't available. So we're actually getting together in a couple of days here um, to finish work on something we started last month. But as I look forward to the next few months, you know, I will have something released. You know, I'll still release four songs in the, in the three months that are left here in the year. And this is what came up in therapy. But what's, what's really hard for me to say, actually, is outside of, the, uh, outside of those songs, I'm not really sure I have any other songs in me right now. And when I was talking about it with my girlfriend, I said, I have one song left in me to write right now. And, you know, there's always songs I could write. I mean, I literally have a phone full of voice memos. You know, every songwriter has, you know, they use their phone these days as like their little dictaphone where as ideas come to them, they, <clears throat> they record them. And I certainly have a hundred songs I could write, but there's also this feeling I think a lot of creative people experience, which is, you know, there's always a wellspring of things that could be done, but really there's a, there's a, I don't know if it's like a spotlight or 
whatever it is, but there's also the scope of the work that should be done and that you feel is a part of where you're at right now and part of the zeitgeist. And, and, and so even though there's thousands of song ideas, they'll just never get written. You know, they're more like, you know, if you took a, a chainsaw to a log or something, a lot of those ideas and fragments are just like the wood chips coming off it, you know, while you're whittling down your, your sculpture. Ooh, this is getting poetic. But, um, and so I'm kind of like, you know, I'm just going to take this metaphor as far as I can. But so I'm certainly standing in a lot of wood shavings and things I could sort of pick up and finish. But if I'm being honest in terms of like, my creative wellspring or whatever as a songwriter, there's only one song in me right now that feels inspired that feels like, Oh, I have something to say and it's that song right there and I haven't finished it yet, but I'm, I think that'll be the last song. I will write it between now and the end of the year and record it with Gowan. If I'm being perfectly frank though, I mean, unless something changed and it certainly could, um, I mean, I have this performance coming up uh, this Sunday, actually. You're going to hear this much later. I mean, I'm really banking a lot of these recordings. I'm releasing them once a week, but I still record like two episodes a week, so I'm way in the future. Um, Or actually, I should say, by the time you hear this, this will be way in the past. But at the time that I'm recording this, I have a performance with Matt Nathanson again uh, this Sunday in Livermore. And that's going to be a big show. I think I just was speaking with the... um, I was going to say his tour manager, but I don't know what you call him since this is not a tour. It's just sort of a one-off. The show producer, the showrunner, I don't know, production manager. But, um, you know, I think the capacity for the venue is about 1,200, almost 1,300, which is bigger than any of the venues we played on his tour. But, you know, I suspect that I'll be sort of maybe motivated by that. And maybe it'll just be to finish the one song. But what I'm really trying to say is unless something changes, I, I don't feel like I have any songs in the reservoir and I can be pretty doom and gloom and catastrophic and, and, and make these sort of declarative things like, um, like, well, what I said with my girlfriend is I was talking about this with her and I said, you know, I have one song in me right now and it may be the last song I ever write. You know, and it's not beyond me to to say sort of overly dramatic things like that and then say, oh, yeah, that was just me being emotional. But but I am wondering why it came up. Like, why would I say something like that? And this is what I was talking about in therapy and saying, you know, a lot is changing in my life right now. And part of that is, a big part of that is going back to school. And, um, you know, like I said, I reached more people in the last couple of years with my music than I ever have before. But if I'm being honest, it's, you know, to continue seriously consider, cons- to seriously consider being a songwriter as a profession, uh, it, it's just not, it's not likely that I'll ever be able to support myself uh, with my um, creative work as a songwriter. Um, and that's okay. That's, that's most people. Um, And, you know, there's other things I could do. I mean, like, I have a lot of friends who are professional musicians, and part of their income is writing and performing their original music. But a lot of it is playing cover gigs and playing paid gigs where they're playing cover songs. And if I'm being honest, it's it's once I really started thinking about what it would mean to be a professional musician, I mean... I don't think it's too simplistic to say, like, if you are competent at your instrument, if you have a serviceable, serviceable voice and you're willing to hustle, you can, you can be a professional musician tomorrow. You know, I mean, it's going to take some networking and there's going to be some groundwork in terms of, you know, getting those first gigs and building some relationships, but you can be a full-time musician performing cover gigs and teaching lessons and it's going to be a grind and it's going to be a hustle and you'll never be rich, but you can, you can be a professional musician, no doubt. But for me, I mean, as soon as I realized that I, it was just obvious to me that if, if that's what being a professional musician meant, I'd rather do something else. Um, you know, my primary interest has always been, first of all, writing it and, and recording for myself, my original music. Um, that's the joy for me and that's the work and that's what gives me the most satisfaction. Um, and if I can't make a living doing that, 
I'd, 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 I'd probably prefer to try to do something else. Um, I'm just not like my friends who love playing their instruments and they don't care what they're playing. As long as they're on their instruments and they're making a living doing music, they're happy. And I'm, I'm just not that way. Um, you know, I started doing theater when I was a kid and at some point I chose to express myself in music, but it's not like I, you know, it's not like music is the thing that I need to be doing. It's expressing myself. It's creating and it's, um, you know, and I think what I'm trying to say is, uh, and I, and I hesitate saying it, not cause I'm conflicted about it, but because I, I, I just, I'm concerned how other people will feel when they hear this. But right now the most exciting thing for me is doing the podcast. And, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is as much as I've enjoyed music and as, and as, you know, I, I was, I'm trying to find a different word, but I'm just going to say it. I mean, I've had some success. I think it's fair to say I've had some success, um, with my music and I, I mean, look from, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm being a braggart when I just, if I'm just saying the truth, which is, you know, I mean, I, thir- I certainly think I've improved a lot over the years, but if I'm being honest, from day one, from the minute I started sharing my original music and performing live, I noticed that a lot of things I think my peers wanted were coming to me much easier. From day one, I've had certain people who've reached out to me and been very passionate and been, you know, very clear that there was something that I was creating that was very meaningful to them. And they were few and far between, Um, especially at first. But it was not uncommon for me to have people send me messages saying that my music really meant something to them or for people to record covers of my songs and put them on YouTube. I mean, I was astonished when, you know, I had a peer of mine who years after knowing them, and I'd always considered this person much more successful than I was, share after years of knowing them, oh, this is the first cover that someone's ever done of my music that they found on YouTube. And I had already had dozens of them. Sorry, I just hit the mic. <laughs> I've already, I had already had dozens of them. And to this day, on a, on a, on a pretty regular basis, I, I have people reaching out to me about recordings I did as the plastic arts, you know, and saying my record Academy Clones was really meaningful to them. And I'm not saying that to, um, to brag. Uh, it's not a flex or anything. It's just, I'm trying to acknowledge that I'm, I'm not pretending that it's going to make a difference to a lot of people, whether or not I, I stop, I continue or stop doing music. You know, it's not going to affect the world in any meaningful sense, but you know, the times that people did reach out to me and connect with me, well, let me, let me see if I can put it this way. You know, I, I say this cover that I have, or, or the the covers that I did in the last like first year, had reached more people than anything else I had done. You know, when you're coming up, you know, and you put out songs and they get like double digit streams or on, you know, or whatever it is. When you when you put out a record and 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 literally nobody buys it, or maybe ten people buy it, or you know, I don't know what the numbers would be, but every every aspiring artist I know knows what it's like to put out something and have it be ostensibly completely ignored by the public. Um, um, you know, it's easy to imagine, oh, dude, when I have X amount of likes on my Facebook page or when I have X amount of streams on Spotify, I'll, I will feel like I've made it. You know, I'll feel like I had, I've connected with people. But I can, I can, I, I'm, I'm not lying at all when I say like, you know, I have tens of millions of streams now on Spotify and the overwhelmingly vast majority of them mean nothing to me because it's not my material because it's not my songs. It's somebody else's songs. And I'm glad that, you know, I find some satisfaction that people like my version of the song, but it's, it really indicates to me because it's not fulfilling that that's, you know, it's not just success as a musician. That's going to make me happy because, you know, whatever quote success I have right now is not, it's not fulfilling to me. It's not making me happy. Um, I would, I mean, if I could transfer all of those streams over to my original music, maybe I'd revisit these feelings, (laughs) 
but um and and look there is some crossover obviously when you reach that big that, that big of a funnel you know and a, a percentage of those people find and enjoy your original music no doubt about that and so still i've reached more people even with my original music in the last few years than i have with everything i've done combined but where am i going with all this um You know, it's probably something I have to keep thinking about and maybe it'll come up in future conversations. And so, I mean, I feel like when I talk about things like this that are this important to me, you know, I'm going to walk away and, and wish I would have said 10 other things that, <laughs> or want to clarify 10 things that I said or, or, or you know, want to run back to the mic and say things that I didn't say. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, this is a big, this is a big topic for me, obviously, and I'll, I hope to still talk more about it, but, um, my state of the union or whatever right now is um, I'm not really sure what the future of my creative output will be as far as music is concerned, because right now I'm really enjoying the podcast and um, yeah, I'm not sure what that means exactly, but um, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of funny. I think in another episode I was talking about when I'm in therapy sometimes, I'll be saying good things about myself. And yet I'll find that I'm in this sort of like this defensive posture or I'm sort of curled up into the corner of the sofa, like rubbing my beard, like ruminating, rueful, I think I call it. Like I'm being rueful. And so even now I'm talking about something that's bringing me a lot of joy in my life. I mean... Right now, um, and maybe I started talking about this a moment ago, but right now I'm kind of a little, you know, I'm not lost at sea or anything, but I am kind of adrift um, in my life in general. I'm just in a huge transitional period. I'm back at school, um, and I'm just putting a lot of things on my life or in my life on the table. Have you heard that expression before? Like, I'm sort of evaluating everything, and I'm not committed to any one thing. You know, I'm back at school, so my life as a student is, oh, I'm looking at that and, and observing it. I'm, um, excuse me, bourbon. Um, I'm looking at and observing my life as a student. I'm looking at and observing my life as a creative person, uh, as a partner, as a romantic partner. I mean, in the relationship uh, that I'm in currently. And um, hell, even therapy. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm feeling a little directionless in therapy as well, now that I've been there for for so many years and done done so much work and, and feeling like I've actually made a lot of progress, I, I need to reevaluate what that is going to mean to me. Um, you know, I mean, I've never talked about this before, but um, I actually, I actually, I, I'm a sober person. Like, um, I I don't, I literally have not consumed a mind altering substance in the last, I mean, short of like caffeine. I mean, if you want to get technical about it, I mean, you know, what is a drug, man? Like, you know, I've taken ibuprofen. Actually, I took melatonin for the first time the other night. It didn't do anything to me, but I was literally at my girlfriend's place with a headache and I was like, oh man, I need some Advil. She's like, oh, we don't have any. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I go and look in her cabinet and I just see, and I don't know why, <laughs> but I just see this bottle of melatonin and I just take one and say, Hey, I'm going to take one of these. And she's like, why? And I was like, mm, I've never taken a sleeping aid before, which I had never done. And so I took one and it didn't do anything to me. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't taken a mind altering substance in, in years. And by that, I mean, you know, alcohol, weed, anything. Um, and, and I, it's because I have some, um, experience in recovery, but uh, I was never like a depraved alcoholic or anything, but uh, I was, you know, drinking and smoking weed habitually. And um, a lot of it was emotional avoidance, you know? I mean, I, I talk about this with my girlfriend and I'm using a phrase that I actually heard Adam Carolla say, but it seems to sum it up nicely, which is, especially in popular culture now, weed has been um, 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 apotheosized as some sort of, uh, or deified as some sort of uh, folk hero you know, this sort of cure-all and it's become this symbol of anti-establishmentarianism and counterculture. And it's always kind of been that, but to see it commodified and embraced now that it's becoming decriminalized in so many areas, I mean, out here in the Bay Area, Colorado, all over the United States now, it's really becoming a, a 
you know, um, you know, commodified and it's, and it's becoming just a part of the culture. I mean, when I sit with Gal and Matthews, my collaborator, and we reference popular music, we're always surprised at how dark it is and how murky it is now and how chill everything is. And I, I'm convinced it's, it's weed. I mean, I think the younger generation, their drug of choice right now is weed. And I think people are just sort of melting into their couches and fucking, I just think that's really influenced the aesthetic of the culture, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, for myself, you know, I was, I was, uh, and again, I, I, it's probably just me being a, a, you know, an apologist for myself, but it was never really depraved, but I was drinking habitually. I was smoking habitually. And, um, at some point I decided that, um, you know, if I was going to keep developing, if I was going to keep getting better just as a person and being present in my life that I had to give it up. And, uh, part of doing that was, uh, I tried it myself and, you know, didn't drink for a few years. And then I, I did. And then, um, when I decided I really wanted to quit everything for good, I did go to a, a brief program, um, through Kaiser actually. Um, so if you have Kaiser coverage and you're feeling like you need recovery, um, my very personal experiences, you can try their, um, chemical dependency and recovery program. Um, <laughs> Um, th- for, you know, for this podcast, it's like, you know, people have sponsors and they do ads. Like, uh, maybe I should reach out to uh, CDR, Kaiser CDRP and see if they want to pay me to, to evangelize for them. But, um, um, it'd probably be more stimulating and fun than me undies or whatever the fuck everyone else is advertising or fucking blue apron or whatever. Um, but where am I going with all this? Yeah. Me being sober. Oh, I was thinking, you know, at that time, you know, that was a weird period where, um, and, and, and again, I'm not just trying to apologize for myself, but the truth is it, it just, I, 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 I basically, I, I walked through that program. It was very easy. And I, and when I was ready to quit, I never really struggled. And I was in that program with people who were struggling. I mean, I was alongside people who had opiate addictions, people who were, um, you know, smoked crack cocaine for years. And, you know, I respect their stories and stuff, but I, I don't think it's, you know, and, and, the, and the confidentiality of what we shared in those meetings and in those groups and stuff. But you can just imagine what some people's lives are like. I mean, you have fathers who are um, opiate addicted and are now, are now uh, criminals to, to feed their drug addiction. And you have people who are going into homeless encampments to buy crack cocaine and people who are prostituting themselves to, fu- to fuel their drug habits. And you feel stupid going in there when people are like, oh, I drink two 30-packs of beer a day, and what do you drink? And you're like, oh, I drink like a six-pack of, of fucking Pilsner. <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck are you doing here, man? And you're like, oh, uh, <laughs> you know, you don't feel like you qualify. Um, but what I'm really trying to say is, you know, at that point in your life, you know, anyone who has to go through recovery, I mean, if you really want to change your life, you have to put everything on the table. And that's a real challenge for people. You know, when someone enters a program and you say, look, if you really want to get sober, you need to reconsider everything. The romantic relationships you have, dude, even your family. Dude, sometimes the people who've been encouraging you to get sober the longest are actually the, the biggest contributors to your drug use whether they realize it or not could be the greatest contributors to your, um, to whatever mental state is, is helping to keep you using, you know, it could be not your friends, your social circle, your romantic life, your work life, everything. If you, for most people who are really struggling, if you want to get sober, dude, you have to be willing to give it all up and start completely anew. Um, and so I'm not trying to be operatic or dramatic and say that that's where I'm at in my life right now, but it is something like that. You know, I, I think, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I could keep on trying to do what I've been doing, but to date it's been a struggle and it's not working. And, uh, and I tell you what, man, I, I don't, it's felt misguided at times, but in hindsight, I'm always really proud of myself but if I had to give myself a, compliment, a uh, myself a compliment or pat myself on the back, it's that when I look back on my life, I'm I'm just proud that I've always and sometimes it's taken a while to summon the courage, but I've always never been afraid to start over and to drop what I had at the time to sort of make room in my life for the next best thing. And 
through sheer will or what resilience or whatever it is, I've always been able to push through whatever I was struggling against to, 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 to sort of pull my life into the space that I felt like I needed to be in. And at first that was therapy. And after that, I think it was like playing open mics again. And creatively, it's been starting over. I mean, I look back and I think, you know, if I had never changed my name, if I had just stayed as the plastic arts this whole time, who knows what would have happened? Maybe I would have found an audience. But, you know, I, dude, and maybe to my own detriment, but I, 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 follow a, <laughs> I follow a higher path or a higher calling. You know, I admire peers of mine or, or friends of mine who are very business minded, but it's, I'm like, <laughs> I'm an artist, man. You know, I'm, I'm chasing something else. And I, I don't know. I, I, you know, my buddy Pat Hole once told me this and it sounds so, <laughs> it sounds like something, uh, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, a, a total hippy dippy thing that I would, I nor if I heard it, anyone else say it, I would roll my eyes at it, but it really felt true to me and my friend pat i was talking about something like this or something and he said you're a truth seeker man and i couldn't really let it in at the time but that's how i feel and i'm chasing the truth and i don't care if it's would help me be more successful or whatever it is but i'm seeking the truth and um if it means calling myself creatively by another name or doing covers for a year. I'm going to do whatever I feel called to do eventually. And after three years of this end the air apparent thing and creating music and some of the best things of my creative life have happened in this time period. I've reached more people. And I, 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 and I mean, the, the tour with Matt Nathanson was awesome. And playing with him again is, uh, in, in a few days is going to be awesome. But I just, if when I'm alone and I shut the door and I don't think about anybody else and I don't think about success and I don't think about my career and I don't think about what I should be doing and I just think about what do I feel called to do? What do I feel compelled to do? What, do, what sounds like fulfillment and enjoyment? Right now, it's the podcast. And that feels like a silly thing to say. When I look at the numbers, you know, and I know that the vast majority of people who are connected to me don't seem to care about this. You know, I think we're averaging about 150 streams per episode, which is not nothing. You know, I'm grateful for the people who do listen to this. But that's a fraction of the amount of attention I get from my music. But, you know, I don't know if it's... Yeah, I don't know what you want to call it. I hope in the, I hope in the future I'll look back on this time period and, and see it as creative courage. <laughs> But it's what I'm going to do. You know, and if things change, if, if more songs come out of me after, you know, in 2020, um, I'll release them. And I don't mean to make a sort of cheap mm, analogy or um, simile or I don't, I don't know. I can't think of the fucking word for it right now. <laughs> but th- next year is going to be 2020. And it feels like a happy coincidence that I'm thinking a lot about clarity. You know, part of that is 2020 clarity of vision, yada, yada, yada. By the way, be prepared for more of that. (laughs) You're going to be hearing that everywhere. People talking about 2020 and vision and clarity or whatever. I mean, I'm surprised I don't see more political campaigns that are like, you know, uh, you know, Bernie 2020, um, keep your eyes on the future or some, or some shit like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a part of growing up. I mean, I talk about this with my friend, Matt Evans, like nearly every time we're on the phone, we talk about this. Like when you enter your thirties and it really begins, I think you feel the germinal parts of this at the end of your twenties, you know, when your brain has stopped developing and you, you know, I talk about this with people. Like when you, 
when you reach about the age of 30, and I'm not saying everyone feels this way. I think most people who are, this is super judgy, but most people who are living well feel something like this, which is something in you settles down. Some, I don't know, torment, some, I don't know, some, I don't know, chaos inside you settles at the end of your 20s and in your 30s. And you, and I think a lot of people have these almost spiritual experiences where they sort of reconnect with who they were as a child on some level and revisit the things that they enjoyed with a kid. And there's this sense that the specifics are different, but I think a lot of people feel like, wow, when I entered my early teens and then my early 20s and up until my late 20s, I was in this sort of wilderness period of my life where I was sort of trying to become an adult and I was trying to become the type of person I wanted to be. And that's all, that's all an important journey. And you take all of that with you as well. I mean, that's important, critical stuff. But there's also this enlightened sense sometimes where we revisit and we almost feel like we were more fully formed as a child, you know, and we reconnect with our early interests and it's almost like, wow, I had more figured out when I was eight than when I was 21 and protesting and chaining myself to bulldozers, thinking I could change the world. Like, I saw the world with more clarity and truth and honesty when I was a young child than I did in my, in my teenage years. But, um, but I'm trying to talk about this, this feeling that I think you start to feel as an adult, which is, dude, and this is what the fucking pristine sneaker life is about, dude. <laughs> Not giving a fuck. Where you're calm, man. You just step out of the struggle and you say, I don't give a fuck what other people want for me. What do I want to do? What's going to make me happy? And not in a chase the brass ring sort of way. But you realize, hey man, this is my life. And I'm going to fucking die one day. And when I'm on my deathbed, what work do I really not want to leave unfinished? Because for me right now, it's not, I'm not going to wish I would have played more cover gigs. You know, I don't, I mean, I think I've only talked about this publicly like in one other space, but you know, I auditioned for The Voice two years ago. Maybe a year ago. Maybe a year and a half ago. I don't know. But they, you know, I signed a confidentiality thing. I don't know what people know about this audition process. But they invited me down to Los Angeles to audition for The Voice. I was slotted in. You know, I'm sitting with people who say, how did your other audition go? I don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) You know, my sense is these other people were corralled in a hotel somewhere and sat in a circle and got five seconds to sing for a judge, and they got corralled to a second step. And then I met them up at step three or whatever. We're at these sound stages in Los Angeles, and I'm, I'm in this sound... You know, everyone's taken in separately to the sound stage where they got lights on you and a camera. And they have me stand on this X, and they're having me sing. I got to prepare these fucking songs. And I'm in the middle of my first song, and they stop me and tell me to open my eyes and look at the camera. And I'm like, whatever. And then they tell me, to, tell me to stand on this X and have me do another song. And it's a, it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> and then, you know, you either get sent home or they fucking ask you to do a video. Like, oh, we want to do a video interview or whatever the fuck. And so they asked me to do it. You know, I, but I move on to the next step where they do a video interview. And it's, look, everybody was phenomenally nice. I was, and, and I've known people who've gone even further in the competition. And when, and, you know, you get sequestered at this hotel and they prepare you for the blind auditions and all that stuff. I would have been fucking miserable if I did that. If that audition was anything like what the future would have felt like on that fucking show, it would have been a nightmare. So I'm not going to wish I would have fucking tried out for more TV fucking music contests like The Voice or American Idol. And I know it's easy to bash these things. Um, You know, I'm not just trying to be... um, I don't fucking know. Contrary. I'm just trying to be honest, which is, it's not going to be wishing I had done more of that for fucking sure. Um, 
you know, but what work do I really want to leave behind? You know, what am I really going to enjoy spending my time doing? And right now it's this. (laughs) You know, right now it's just talking for an hour. And like I said, I've committed to 100 episodes of this. And I fucking mean it. I could lose, if everybody I've connected with up until this point unfollows me or disconnects from me, gets sick and tired of hearing about the podcast, thinks I suck at it, I'm not even, I'm not going to stop until I do 100. And I've decided for myself at that point that I don't want to do it anymore. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I don't know. I feel like I'm saying that combatively. <laughs> uh, I don't know what um, antagonism I'm. Uh, um, um, I imagine myself sort of uh, speaking against. I'm just alone in my room here. But um, but yeah. But it's scary for me too. I mean, it's scary to say that I feel like I want to do something else. Almost like I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm talking about creative confidence and I'm talking about how in hindsight I've, I've, I've liked every choice that I've made, but what I'm trying not to talk about is when I was growing up, I did theater. I was an actor. Two things. I'm a huge fan of the Chris D'Elia podcast. And when I, what made me first start thinking about doing a podcast was, and I think I've always thought about it, but I mean, when I started thinking about it seriously, I was listening to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. I love that podcast. And it's not like I follow it meticulously. I hadn't listened to it for years. And then when I did this tour recently, I had just banked a bunch of episodes of the Brady Snellis podcast and listened to hours of it while I was on the road. It was probably the, I listened to it probably almost exclusively on my recent uh, West Coast tour by myself. And I was so... I was, I don't know. I was just really, um, I was really taken by it, how well-spoken he was. And also, but I was really hyper-conscious of my enjoyment of it as a listener, which is, I don't think this is for everybody, but what I love about Brett Easton Ellis is how confident he is. And I loved his committed point of view and I loved how articulate he was and whether or not you agree with him, just how passionate he was about his political perspective about his take on the culture about his take on film and i was like that's the kind of connection i want to have with people um and so that sort of got the gears turning and that's the time where i started practicing just like talking into my phone for like an hour but i think the thing that really put the nail in the coffin because it was happening simultaneously as i was you know had done you know dozens of you know practice recording myself i got into the crystalia podcast and it brought, I, I, I still, I'm like going through all the episodes a second time. That podcast has brought so much joy to my life in the last couple months. And I don't use that word lightly. I mean, I remember when I first stumbled on it. Dude, it was like when I talk about stumbling on music. You know, I stumble on a song I like and I get so elated because I know what's happening. I know I'm going to listen to that song on repeat for like weeks until I fucking bury it, you know, until it's fucking dead to me. But that's how I felt about the Crystalia podcast. And I would have it on in the background all the time. I mean, it's, even after I started school, I mean, I could be, I loved it. I could be doing homework and just have Crystalia on in the background. And dude, I would laugh so hard by myself. And like real from the gut laughter. And he talks about this sometimes on his podcast, that he doesn't understand why people would enjoy the podcast more than his stand-up. Or he talks about his dad saying, hey, I was reading online, like some people like your podcast more than your stand-up. How is that possible? I think Chris D'Elia is a good stand-up, no doubt about it. But I love his podcast because it's like having a new friend. That's what it felt like, dude. It felt like a new best friend, (laughs) you know? 
you really do have this intimacy and and yeah it's it's brought so much joy to me um so yeah i don't know where i'm going with that except to say um yeah i don't know that's kind of where i'm at that's what i want to that's the kind of voice i want to develop i think that's uh, what i want to do um Yeah, I'm not, I can't remember how they're connected, but what I was saying is, you know, about a couple minutes ago, I was saying what I'm trying not to say is that when I was a kid, I did theater. Ah, here it is. So what Chris Leah talks about is he loves stand-up. You can't get him off stage. And I hear that and I think, and I've always known this. I mean, this has come up for me multiple times over the years in therapy. That's not how I feel about music. Like, I tolerate performing and I think I'm a competent performer and, but it's, you know, I fucking don't understand when people are like, Oh, I feel, I never feel more alive than when I'm on stage that I've never had anything like that with music. But when I think back to when I was a kid and I did theater and it's not like I think I was great, but I did great. I mean, I was doing phenomenally well. I mean, I ended up going to this performing arts boarding school and studying theater, and, and it looked like my trajectory was like on to Juilliard, on to whatever the fuck, and hopefully, you know, you're fucking an actor on Broadway or whatever the fuck. But I just remember like playing these improv games, and it's like they had to tell me to to stop, <laughs> you know, because I would just not, I would just constantly tag in and want to get in there, and whether or not I had something canned, I just wanted to fucking be on stage and performing. And my brother has this story about me that I think about kind of sad. It's sad for me, but it's also, it's, it's touching as well, which is <clears throat> when I was in fourth grade, um, I don't remember why. I think it was like raining at school and for whatever reason to like brighten people's spirits, they were playing music on the PA system in the, in the cafeteria. You know, these huge multi-purpose rooms at like public schools where you have like hundreds of kids like having... Uh, lunch in this multi-purpose room and then they'll clear out the tables and you're going to have fucking PE in there in two hours or some shit like that. Um, you're going to be playing fucking Smear the Queer or fucking Dodgeball in uh, in PE in a couple hours. But um, I remember just getting up on stage and just dancing for the whole cafeteria. <laughs> and uh, that was just who I was, you know? And I mean... You know, I'm not sure what you remember about the mother's makeup story. And believe me, there's a laundry list of other things that um, we might get into on other episodes. But, you know, I don't, that was, I mean, I don't want to say that was taken from me. But my experience really stole that from me. You know, that was a part of my personality that should have been fostered at all costs. And instead, you know, when things in my family got really rocky, I was just allowed to abandon all of it. And for years, I felt responsible for that. You know, I was allowed to decide to stop doing those things. I was allowed to decide to stop doing theater. And, uh, you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but I was allowed to make decisions. And I'm sorry I'm being cryptic here, but I was allowed to make decisions in my life I should not have been given the power to do. And it's really altered the course of my life. And I think, I mean, I think everyone lives you know, short of winning the cosmic lottery and, and, and all of your dreams come true, which just doesn't happen <laughs> for almost everyone. You know, most people my age will look back and, and, and they'll grieve some moment in their life that they wish would be different. And it's easy for them to think, well, what might, what would my life have been like if that didn't happen?
And for me, it was, it was, it was leaving this performing arts boarding school that I went to and deciding that I was going to stop doing theater. And this, this did come up when I was talking about Macbeth, but, um, you know, and I was saying that at the school that I went to, they said they were never going to do Macbeth. And then when I left, they, they announced that they were doing Macbeth. And it was this real moment of feeling like I was betraying my, even, even then, you know, this sense like, oh, I feel like I might be betraying my fate here and still leaving. But, um, you know, and I'm I'm not pretending to know that I would have been a successful actor. I I could have gone on to college and, I mean, given where my life was at at that point and, and where I was coming from emotionally, I mean, I could have completely fucking imploded later in life. And, and who knows what coping strategies I could have, I could have reached for. I, you know what I mean? I, I given what what the next fifteen years of my life looked like and how you know difficult they were in a lot of ways. Who knows? Who knows what would have happened? But what does feel reasonable is that the people I admire most, the Crystalias or the Brady Sinellises, you get this undeniable sense that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing on this planet. They are in their element and they know it. And whether or not they're going to be successful, you get the sense that they would do it anyway. You know, I take Chris Lee at his word. He says he loves stand-up. I bet he would do it if he was not successful at it. The fact that he is successful at it, it's just a cherry on top, right? That you get to be to, to make money doing what you love incredible and i think i've i've learned a lot as a songwriter i think i have a talent for it and i've had some success but believe it or not i don't know that i'm in my element my true element when i'm doing it and and again, I mean, when you talk about these things, I think there's this, this anticipation or this um, assumption that when you're in your element, you're going to be successful at it. So I worry myself when I say these things, because I, I can't promise you that I'll have a successful podcast, <laughs> whatever that means. But if we're just talking about the feeling... I really love doing this. I really do enjoy it. (laughs) And maybe that'll lead to something else. You know, maybe the podcast is just the beginning of me, you know, touching on something that will, will, will lead me to something else. But, and and I'm partly trying to sum up here because I know we're out of time. But when I talk about the times in my life where I've been proud of myself for having the courage to let go of something, just trusting that I needed to make room in my life for something else, it's generally worked out. And I feel silly saying it now because I don't know I, I I I don't know what it's going to be. But I'm beginning to to seriously consider uh, letting go of music and maybe not exercising it completely from my life. But, but, but seriously changing my relationship to it. And that's, that's scary for me to say. Um, and it's a vulnerable thing to say. And, um, yeah, I feel myself getting emotional talking about it, but, um, Yeah, I just I have to be honest about how I'm feeling, and uh, and again, I I I feel strange to me that I'm 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 actually talking about something I really enjoy, which is doing the podcast, and and again, I I go back to that image of me being on the therapist couch, like sort of rueful and and, and scratching my beard. I, I don't know why um I don't know why that's my response, but I think what I'm really trying to communicate is to the few of you who are listening. I mean, thank you. It really means a lot that you're tuning into this because uh, it's really important to me right now. And, um, not that that's why you should listen. I want you to listen because you enjoy it. And, um, and if you do, if you genuinely do enjoy it, 
share it with someone. You know, think of one person in your life who you really think would enjoy it and share it with them. Share your favorite episode. Share this episode. Um, again, you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube. And, um, and if you're willing to give it a good review and rate it, um, please do. Every little bit helps. But uh, if you only do one thing, um, keep listening yourself. Because uh, if you want to keep me all to yourself, that's fine with me too. So, thanks for sitting through all that with me. Um, this might be the one episode where we've really hit on one note the entire time. <laughs> but uh, I guess it needed to be said. So, um, thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for listening. And uh, I look forward to doing it again soon. Ciao for now. <laughs>